I'm Kara Jensen-McKinnon, digital producer at the Centre for Ideas. This conversation between Harbin Germa and Naz Campanella was originally going to be a live event at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. Fortunately, both Naz and Harbin were kind enough to record their interview over Skype. Throughout the recording, you will hear the sound of typing, which is Harbin's Braille computer. Naz asks the questions which are typed onto a keyboard and then converted to Braille for Harbin to read. On behalf of the Centre for Ideas team, I hope we can come together and share ideas again soon. But in the meantime, we have a world of podcasts and live stream events being recorded and published every week. So stay tuned. And now, here's Naz Campanella and Harbin Goma. Harbin, it is so wonderful to be able to talk to you. Let's start off by talking about this strange world that we are currently living in, the world of coronavirus pandemic. How have you been coping? I'm in California, and here everyone's been ordered to shelter in place. That means most people, people who, who want to follow the rules, are staying home. People with disabilities have encountered various struggles related to that. Some people rely on in-person communication, like the deaf-blind community, using tactile communication. So the ability to go and do essential services is becomes more difficult when you don't have access to those things. I've been staying home and relying on tech as much as possible and delivery services as much as possible. I'm a little bit the same here in, in Sydney, Australia. It's been a really strange time. We've been in lockdown uh, for a few weeks now and most people are, are starting to really stay at home. We're allowed to head out of our houses once a day for exercise uh, or to go and buy food and things like that. But in terms of all the cafes and restaurants, everything is closed. And um, so it's it's been a it's been it's taken a little bit of time to get used to. I think I think for me, um, I'm still actually physically coming into the office to do my job because I obviously work in radio and 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 need the equipment and facilities. And um, so, uh, but but I I've I've heard from lots of other people um, that they it is sort of starting to get to them that cabin fever feeling. Are, are you feeling a sense of that as well? I am going out every day and walking. I'm walking more than I used to, actually. I now walk about three miles every day, and it's become the highlight of my day. I really appreciate being to being able to smell all the flowers we have blooming in this area right now. Lots of jasmine. Do you have jasmine in Sydney? We do. It's one of my favorite scents. I love it. Me too. I drink a lot of jasmine tea. Oh, that sounds uh, amazing. And in, in terms of the disability community, what have you, um, I, I guess, been talking about with some of the your peers who also live with a disability in terms of how this has impacted them specifically? I know for me, for example, I usually uh, take somebody's arm uh, to, to get around unfamiliar places. And for me, that's meant maybe not doing that as much or wearing long sleeves um, so that there's that reduced skin-on-skin contact? I think a lot of people are staying home whenever possible. And in terms of going to places around their community, before the pandemic started, people had systems in place. 
Maybe someone knew the route to get to their local grocery store with their white cane or guide dog, so they would probably still use the same route, though it's advisable whenever possible to use delivery services or, or find alternative ways so that you're minimizing being in contact with people. One of the biggest fears right now within the disability community is the medical community not thinking our lives are worth saving. Ableism is the idea that disabled people are inferior to the non-disabled. We're not inferior, but that idea is widespread, including in the medical community. So several states put out policies saying if we reach a point where we're struggling to get enough resources to people, we will refuse services to people with intellectual disabilities or people with spinal cord injuries. And advocates have protested that and the specific states in questions have pulled back their policies. But then there's still more states to work on and, and, and more places where this is a problem. I've heard very similar things. Uh, lots of people within the disability community talking to me in stories I've done over the past few weeks about the fact that, you know, they're nervous about having support workers in because they might have a compromised immune system already. And, and this pandemic, I guess, has heightened that nervousness around them having people in and out of their homes um, and getting, I, I guess, more, more sick. And I, I think that's definitely a concern, it seems, around the world in, in the community. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's definitely a concern. Then there's also the concern of communication access once you get to the hospital. If, if, you, if you have to go to the hospital, some people need sign language interpretation. Some people need tactile sign language interpretation. And there are fears that deaf and deafblind people will not get communication access at the hospital. Yeah, look, definitely some widespread issues there that we do need to canvas, obviously, now and, and, and use as a way of, I guess, learning for the future if this is to happen again or similar emergencies. And I think these things could be applied to even, you know, we have lots of bushfires here in Australia, um, whether it be tornadoes in the US. Um, do you think it's something that could be applied to other emergency situations? I think it's I've been saying for a long time, when looking into emergency preparedness, also plan for people with disabilities. Pandemics, fires, all kinds of emergencies, plans need to include access for people with disabilities. If we move on to, I guess, uh, you know, away from the pandemic now, can you talk me through what your childhood is like? What a new topic. What was my childhood like? You, you read my memoir, right, Nas? I did. I absolutely did, and I loved it. I'm, I'm really grateful you took the time to read it. How did you read it? I read the audiobook, so I got to listen to your beautiful voice. That was quite a struggle, actually. Originally, I, I was not scheduled to read the audiobook. Originally, they were going to have someone else read the audiobook. But I advocated, I said, I wanted to read my own story. So we embossed the book in Braille and I read the book in Braille and they recorded me reading the book. 
I'm so glad you did. It's it's only fitting that you, uh, you know, totally 100% own your story because it is your story and it's um, everyone else, uh, you know, usually reads their own audiobook. So I'm so glad you pushed to do the same. Well, my book is all about advocacy and people speaking up for their rights and, and, and going after their dreams. So even the process of creating a book, writing the book, getting the book out, marketing, all of that was full of opportunities to advocate and increase opportunities for the disabled. Absolutely. And I, I, I assume, you know, uh, you might have done some book tours prior to the uh, pandemic lockdown as well. What was that like in terms of uh, making sure that spaces were accessible for people? There are different elements to making book events accessible. So first of all, physical access. We want the spaces to be wheelchair accessible, the audience space, and also the stage because sometimes it's disabled people who are interviewing me. And if they happen to use wheelchairs or need sign language interpreters, all aspects of the venue should be accessible. Then there's communication access, making sure there's a sign language interpreter present, putting out in the flyer that if people need accommodations, here's the number and email address that can be contacted because the deaf community is very diverse. Some people don't use sign language. I personally do not rely on sign language. English is my strength. I prefer reading things in Braille. So flyers should ask people, what accommodations do you need? Here's the phone number and email address to contact. You're, you're very much, um, I, I feel, a trailblazer in this sort of space when it comes to making um, books and events completely accessible to everyone, no matter their circumstance. So um, thank you on behalf of our community for doing that. We really appreciate it. And um, also that I... I, I really encourage everyone to read this. It's You've been so generous in um, sharing your story, but also your, I guess, advice for the non-disabled community as well. You too, Nas. It takes, it takes a community to make our world more accessible. Stories like this, you taking the time to have this conversation and help promote disabled voices, that helps shift our culture and allow people to recognize ableism and help do the work to dismantle ableism. Absolutely. And look, let's dive into into some of the stories that you share in the book. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. What was it like growing up? I was born and raised in California. My parents are from Eritrea and Ethiopia. During the summers, I'd go to Eritrea and the culture is different there, naturally. And I had to readjust to different expectations, especially different expectations for women. They really wanted me to cook, and I said, no, I don't like cooking. But finally, there was a point where everybody in the community, everyone in my family was chipping in to help in the wedding. And my mom said, you have to help with your aunt's wedding. We want you to cook. And I said, I'm happy to support the community. I want to participate, but not cooking. What are the men doing? What chores are they doing? I'll do those chores. 
My mom thought about it and said, okay, follow me. I followed her to the front yard. There was a group of men sitting around a table. She told my uncle, Haben is gonna help you. And I told her, wait a minute. There was a strange smell in the air. What are they doing? And she told me, they're chopping meat for the stew. After advocating that I did not want to do gender chores, she still made me cook. So I sat down, I joined the group, I reached into the pile and brought out chunks of meat. They had slaughtered a bull and everyone was participating in, in chopping it to make meat for the stew. All around me, people were talking and laughing. I couldn't hear the conversations. Deafness is a spectrum. I could hear enough to tell that they were talking, but not enough to catch the words. And it was frustrating to be sitting with my family and not being able to participate, not being able to join the jokes and the laughter. I reached into the pile, got meat, chopped meat, and I tried to tune out all the laughter and merriment around me. I hate being left down. I hate exclusion. I hate cooking. Finally, I tried to zone in to just working and I was reaching in, chopping, reaching in, chopping. Then a cousin screamed. I looked up looked around, I couldn't figure out why she was screaming. She got up and left the group. No explanation in sight, I continued chopping. But something was strange. I put down my knife and I was feeling a strange piece of meat. And then my heart started pounding. It was the bull's penis. I was horrified. Maybe it was a joke that they wanted to scare the girls. Well, I'll show them. I'm not afraid. So I picked up the knife. Then one of the guys came over and took the thing away. And ever since then, whenever my mom asks me to cook, I just tell her, remember the bull? It's uh, yeah, I knew, I knew you were going to tell that story. It's it's um, it's quite indicative, I, I guess, of yeah. I, I, you're an activist from from very early on, I, I feel, and I wondered where that sort of came from. I grew up hearing stories of activism within my family. My mom grew up during the war, and they were told, "Don't speak your language, forget your culture." And they were supposed to only speak Amharic, the Ethiopian language, and adopt Ethiopian culture and ignore their own language, Tigrinya, and, and try to think of themselves as a completely different culture. So they were resisting in small and big ways. People were, were joining the freedom fighters. Those were the stories that I grew up with. And that, and that moved me to, to build up resilience. And whenever I feel something is not right, I question, I resist. You took a, an independent trip to um, a particular country 
that um, most people will never go to in the world in their lifetime. Um, and I wondered if you could share that story with us because I think it's quite indicative of you, uh, I guess, exemplifying to your parents that you were independent and you wanted to do life your own way. That's a really fascinating story. So I've told you my parents are from Eritrea and Ethiopia, which are in Africa. When I was in high school in California, I came to my parents one day and said, I want to go help build a school in Mali. Mali is in West Africa. Yet, my parents were saying, nope, it's not safe. It's, it's too dangerous. You can't go. And I told them, I want to help make the world a better place. I want to help 800 school-aged children build a school so they could get an education. And my parents said, no, it's too dangerous. You can't go. They were very aware of all the dangers. They asked me, you're blind, you can't see. How are you gonna build a school? And I told them, I'm not able to see, but I'm able to, to lift bricks and shovels and dig just like the non-disabled students. And the American students don't know how to build a school. We're gonna be learning together. My parents still said no. So finally, I reached out to the program manager. There's this assumption that disabled people don't know their abilities. So I thought maybe if a non-disabled adult talked to them, maybe they would believe them. Maybe they would believe me. So the program manager sat down with my parents for lunch and she listened to their concerns. How is she gonna build a school? What about malaria? And she addressed all their concerns. Finally, at that point, they agreed to allow me to go to Mali for three weeks, living in a village and building a school. And I went, I helped build a school. I was out in the Saharan sun digging for hours. It was exhausting work. When I came back, my parents had higher expectations for me, but just a little. They're still, to this day, worried about all the dangers in the world. They're still going to be parents. Yeah, look, I think that's an interesting point to make. I, I know my parents at times have been quite, um, I guess, hesitant with some of the decisions I've made and places I've chosen to travel and, and you know, I've gone to to lots of different places on my own. And I, I know when I broached the idea with them about, you know, for example, going to Turkey on my own to travel, um, you know, they, I guess they hadn't had an experience of disability before me. And I suppose they, they'd come from a traditional kind of sense of what disability meant um, and uh, what people could do. And I think unless you show um, your parents or communities um, that there doesn't have to be a huge difference um, in the things we do, the, the, the lives that we lead, I, I just don't think they have a comprehension of that, which is really sad. But I, I think in this case, how do you think 
this sort of changed your life. It seems like this trip really was kind of transformative. Travel is transformative to to all of us. We learn more about our homes and ourselves when we put ourselves in uncomfortable, different situations. Challenging ourselves to step out of our comfort zone helps us grow, especially when we're at that age of high school, 15, and, and really still growing, though we truly never stop growing. How did you convince your parents to let you go to Turkey? I came home one afternoon. I had booked the trip. I mean, I wasn't a high school student. I was, you know, finished with university and my first year of work. And I came home and showed them the ticket, basically. There was no choice. There was no going back. And I think what's important (laughs) to note is that once that decision was made, and I've made it, you know, myself, um, they just said to me, okay, let's put everything in place to make sure that you're safe and you're going to be okay. And and I think that was what, it, it was definitely transformative for me. Yeah. I've also been to Turkey, but very, very briefly, just, just for a few hours when I was coming back from Ethiopia one time. I love the food, the pastries and the coffee. Oh, the food is sensational. All that rose water and honey and the textures, the nuts. They, they have lots of nice sort of nuts and um, flaky pastry. And, um, yeah, it's it's beautiful food. Yes. Do you still eat Turkish food? Do you get a lot of Turkish food in Sydney? We do get quite a lot in Australia. Um, it's sort of very meat-based, I find, um, and I'm, I'm a vegetarian, so... Uh, you know, but I, I can definitely um, get access to like lovely Turkish cheeses and salads and things. Um, but there's a lot of Turkish restaurants here, which is fantastic. What about over there? Well, I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area and there's so much respect and appreciation for alternative eating styles. So many of the restaurants here accommodate different diets vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, One of the other sort of really exciting things that you have done um, is studying at Harvard Law School. And I wondered if you could talk us through how you decided that you would go there. Originally, I wanted to go to law school in California. I didn't care about Ivy Leagues or how prestigious the school was. I just wanted to go to back to California because I was studying, I went to undergraduate in Oregon, which is more rainy compared to California. So I wanted to go back home. And then my law advisor told me that at that time, 2009, a lot of law students were struggling to find jobs. And if I wanted to increase my chances of getting a job, I should try to go to one of the top schools. So I followed his advice and applied to many of the top schools. Harvard offered admission. And originally, I was not excited about the idea of going to snowy, cold Boston. But I figured it would only be for three years and there would be lots of resources and job opportunities once I had a Harvard Law degree. And the advisor was right. I definitely had more opportunities having chosen to go to that school. 
You mentioned resources. Talk me through some of the resources that were at your disposal at Harvard in order to study. For example, grants. I needed to take out loans, but I was also able to get some grants to help reduce my student loan debt. There was also a lot of job opportunities. We regularly had networking events with law firms or public service networking events with the nonprofit organizations for people who did not want to go into corporate law. So there were lots of opportunities, speakers coming in, great professors. And what about resources specifically to helping someone with a disability? Oh, you know, I did not know about that at the time. When I was choosing college, that was a huge factor. I was looking at four colleges and one of the colleges told me, you know, we don't have a braille embosser. We don't think we're gonna be able to braille your books. Or even if we did braille your books, they probably wouldn't get to you on time. And that was someone from their disability office. That was incredibly discouraging and I did not want to end up there. Whereas the school I eventually went to, they told me we don't have a braille embosser, but we'll get one, we'll learn how to emboss your books and we'll make sure they're on time. And that summer they got a braille embosser, they trained one of their reading specialists to learn how to produce braille and she worked with all my professors to make sure all my reading was available in braille. That's how it should be. The school should do the work of making material accessible. Too many schools put the burden on students with disabilities to struggle and juggle making their work accessible on top of studying, which is not fair. I didn't know what Harvard would be like. I was just concerned about employment because I had faced the horrible struggle of employment discrimination and employers assuming you can't do anything. Even, even if you absolutely have the skills, they still assume you're incompetent. So I figured I'd increase my chances of getting a job if I went to Harvard and I'll just figure out what disability accommodations are like once I got there. And I was lucky. They did a great job providing me with access to my course materials in Braille, digital materials. If something wasn't accessible in class, they would get it accessible. I had interpreters to also make audio content, lectures, class discussions accessible for me. Harvard wasn't always like that. There was a time when Harvard wouldn't even allow women. Helen Keller said she wanted to go to Harvard, but back then they wouldn't admit women, only men. Over time, the community changed and Harvard opened its doors to women, people of color, and people with disabilities. They still have more work to do. There's still barriers at Harvard and it's up to the community to continue dismantling barriers, continue striving for inclusion. I think something that struck me when I was looking at different universities to apply to, uh, you know, 10, 
even even 12 years ago, I was struck by the fact that some universities seemed well-equipped with um, great disability student services departments and and when I went and met with a couple of the managers uh, from the departments at different universities, some seemed to be better set up than others. And I think one of the problems I had was it was hard to determine or to weigh up do I go to the university that is the best for the degree that I want to do or do I go to the university that will provide the the support that I need? And I think it's just so unfair that you, you have to sometimes choose between those things. How do we change that? We change it through advocacy. So... Not everyone is in a position to advocate, and I absolutely respect that. There have been times when I felt too exhausted to to address an unfairness. But if someone has the time and resources and energy, they should advocate when they recognize a school is denying access to students with disabilities or their math program is turning away blind students because they feel blind people can never be mathematicians. Math and sciences is an area where a lot of schools are failing to provide access for students with disabilities. Talk me through the the social aspects of of college life and, and of being at Harvard and making new friends. I went to college at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, then later went to law school at Harvard. There were so many changes throughout that time. Middle school through college, I had almost no friends in school. It was really difficult to make friends. In middle school, everyone's focused on being cool. When you're different, when you're obviously disabled, people are reluctant to connect because they feel they won't look cool, at least in middle school. At least that was my experience. So it was really lonely and frustrating. I know people were socializing around me. I read books. I knew what middle school and high school were supposed to be like, full of friendships and sleepovers and parties. But ableism, assumptions of incompetence made it really, really difficult. In college, things were a bit better, but there was still the fear of the unknown, of wanting to to appear cool, and so it was really hard to connect with people. I kept trying. In my book, I talk about the process of trying to connect and, and people being polite on the surface, but you can tell it's condescending, and that they're not really being respectful. That was really frustrating. After a few months, maybe I think it was in the second month, I finally found my group of friends, very serendipitously, but they were people who who were interested in growing, interested in, in new things, things that are different, learning about Eritrea, learning about disability access, and they became my friends 
through the rest of my college career. In law school, I found that people were more mature. A few years had passed since college and people were, were ready to be more authentic and learn from each other and learn from difference rather than being afraid of difference. I sort of had very similar experiences as a, as a young, very young child, uh, I guess, of um, people uh, feeling, I guess, uneasy to approach me in the same way they would approach non-disabled um, children, I, I guess, in the playground or to make friends. Do you think that stems a lot from, I, I guess, uh, non-disabled children or society generally not, I guess, seeing people with disabilities Everywhere they look, you know, uh, they for a long time you would open a magazine and you wouldn't see someone with a disability. You'd turn on the television and not see someone with a disability or, you know, I, I often talk about wanting a world where no matter where you look, whether it be the catwalk, the shops, your workplace, wherever it may be, that you see people with disabilities living full and active lives. And I think for me, once we change that sort of stigma, then I, I, I feel like it will be a lot easier for people to interact with us. Yeah, it's, it's really, really hard to give over their fear of the unknown. I've heard of people who are so concerned about being offensive and saying the wrong word that they never approach and they miss out on learning an opportunity. I always tell people, ask. Let yourself ask those questions. And then you'll realize what those terms mean. You'll learn the stick is called a keen, or how guide dogs work, or how to communicate with someone who's deafblind. You have gone into the space of, of disability human rights. Tell me, uh, I guess, how you've seen that space progress in the last couple of years. So we use litigation and various tools available to create change. And we try to choose those cases that will make the biggest impact and change our culture. Ableism, the idea that people with disabilities are inferior, is so widespread that a lot of people do it without being aware of it. So they have no idea that they're creating barriers. It's never occurred to them to stop and ask, is this a barrier? Who's being left out of our community? You'll get store clerks that say, why should I make my store wheelchair accessible when we've never had customers with wheelchairs? Well, if your store is not accessible, of course people with wheelchairs are not gonna be able to get in. So there's so many layers there and it's important to address those layers. I try to start out by just educating people, letting them know the barriers exist and asking them to remove them. If they don't remove them, well, there are consequences. Looking to the future, what do you think are the biggest sort of barriers that are facing the disabled community? AI is incredibly powerful 
and it's being designed and built without consideration of disabled voices. We need more disabled engineers, designers, testers. The people creating AI need to be diverse. There need to be lots of women, people of color, and people with disabilities to help spot the biases that enter the algorithms. So I'm concerned about future tech that's going to have layers and layers of barriers because of the biases in the creation process. So we need schools to make their math and computer science programs accessible so more disabled people could get into these fields and participate in the design process. And we need the tech companies to increase hiring of people with disabilities so we have more diverse design teams. Harbin, on the issue of innovation, can you explain to us the communication device that you use? In this conversation, we're using a Braille computer and keyboard. As you speak, Gordon is typing what you're saying and I'm reading the words in Braille. It's a standard QWERTY keyboard. I use the system because most people are able to type. Not everyone, but most people are able to type. So I can put a keyboard in front of them, ask them to type what they're saying, and I'm able to read it in Braille. I wanted a system that allowed me to be able to communicate with anyone, at a coffee shop, at a bar, at any kind of situation. And sign language, unfortunately, takes time to learn. And not everyone has the ability to immediately start signing the American Sign Language Alphabet. Then, of course, there are different sign languages in each country. And Australia has a different sign language. Have you ever learned any of Australian sign language, Nas? I have learned a little bit. In fact, I went to film a TV story earlier this week and the person I was interviewing was deaf. So I had a friend come over to my house the night before and quickly help me brush up on at least the alphabet. So I did a lot of finger spelling. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to make the effort to at least say hello, how are you, and, and thank you for the interview. Um, we obviously, of course, had an Australian Sign Language interpreter there with us for the interview, but um, it's a beautiful language and I, I love how expressive it is um, and that I get to use sort of my hands and my body in a, a different way that's very unfamiliar to me as someone who is blind. I obviously can't look at, at sign language and the hand actions um, or facial expressions. So it feels really lovely to be able to interact in that way. I first learnt a bit of Australian sign language when I was working in the Pacific with um, a woman who was deaf and we spent a month together and she was my boss on an volunteer project we were doing um, at a group of disability um uh, special schools and uh, she taught me a lot and I, I felt like I got quite good but then it's that typical thing of you lose what you don't use isn't it? I use some American Sign Language when I'm around people who sign 
For example, deaf friends, they might type to me and I might sign back, or maybe when we're walking, we might be signing and walking. When I sign, I hold my hand over the person's hands and feel their signs. Tactile sign language. Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's, it's lovely. And I, I love how, how you can, you can still walk and, and talk and at the same time, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> then there's also protactile. So if your hands are full, maybe in one hand you have a cup of tea and in another hand you're chatting with someone through sign language or maybe reading braille. With protactile, someone can signal on your shoulder or back, like emotional or environmental information. Smile, applause, someone has just entered the room. There's signals that can be communicated on shoulders, back, arm, anywhere on the body, really, if the hands are occupied. So is it, in a sense, I guess, drawing the perhaps images of a smile, for example, on your back? It's a combination. So you can draw a question mark to signal someone has a question or is making questioning eyes or waiting to ask a question. There's a signal for a smile, which is drawing a smile. Then you, you tap a person with your hand to signal applause. Round of applause can be tapping all around the back or arm. So different combinations of drawing and and movement. Yeah, that's why I love it. It's it's a real expression. Um, it's yeah, it's just a beautiful language. And it's so unique, I guess, to to the person. I, I I'm assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that the tactile science particularly. You actually thing. probably use some of it when you do human guide, sighted guide with someone, and you're holding their arm. You can feel through their arm as their body changes, as they raise their shoulders in a shrug, or they squeeze their arm to themselves to indicate alarm or to ask you to hush for a moment. So there are lots of different ways protactile is used, even if it's not consciously labeled protactile. And I, yeah, as a sighted guide um, technique, I would obviously be able to tell if the person is putting their arm behind their back that I should step behind them because we might be going through a narrow space. Um, you can tell a lot, yes, absolutely, from, from somebody's movement. Yeah. What else? Do you have any signals that you've developed with your sighted guides? Definitely the one uh, where to get through narrow spaces is one. Um, often we've, I've had situations where I'll be chatting to a friend or a colleague while we're waiting for an elevator and then we'll hop in the elevator and to signal that we need to be quiet because, you know, we might, might have been talking about a particular person who is now in the elevator with us. Um, to, so to signal for me to be quiet now is, um, you know, a bit of a, like a, a they press uh, their elbow towards the side of their body and so my hand will sort of get crushed in between so I'll know okay it's time to time to obviously be aware of surroundings um and I think something else I find difficult is I might be walking along using my cane um in an environment that I know very well 
But then if someone comes up to me and says hi and wants to have a chat, I all of a sudden lose my sort of ability, I guess, to be able to multitask and have a conversation with them plus continue knowing where I am. So I often do take their arm as well at at that point just so uh, we can continue chatting but I can also continue on my way um, if we're going in the same direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, I feel like there's standard universal sighted human guide but then within these some communities each blind person and their friends or partners or family come up with their own shared signals yeah absolutely and i I think it's in the same way that that people would come up with their own sort of ways of um you know eye contact and all kinds of things it's just like any anyone, any kind of community would come up with their own sort of way of, of communicating, which I think is, is really great. This is actually one of the things I miss the most during the pandemic is pro-tactile and, and meeting people and connecting with people. I used to go swing dancing about every week and it's, it's a way to connect with people and express joy and build community and for others it's also enjoying music but I'm not really listening to the music I'm just paying attention to the dance through a dance class when you are deafblind how does it work I in my book there's a chapter on my first salsa lesson it was at a camp for the blind and it was actually taught by a blind dance instructor which blew my mind. Nowadays, I'm like, of course blind people can dance. But back then, when I was still learning, I was surprised. And I know today there's still many people who are surprised. And the way she taught the class was through verbal descriptions and touch. She would let me feel her feet, feel her movements, so I knew exactly what to do. And in partner dances like swing and salsa, people are in close contact. You're holding hands, you have an arm on a shoulder, and through that you can feel the movement and rhythm and beat. I'm actually not hearing the beat in the music, but I can feel it through the hands and shoulders of the people I'm dancing with. Look, I'm not going to pretend to be uh, the world's greatest dancer, but I did some dance classes uh, when my husband, just before my husband and I uh, were about to get married. And I, I think it is really funny that a lot of people were asking, "Oh, would we do our first dance?" I mean, of course we would. Just because I'm blind doesn't mean that we wouldn't do that. And and I found it really strange because dance is all about movement. It's about how it feels and. So I, I guess I was quite confused as to why people um, wouldn't associate that for someone who was blind and, and if, you know, for someone who is deaf, you can, you can obviously feel vibration of the music as well. What dance did you and your husband do? Uh, we, our first dance was uh, uh, to Nat King Cole's L-O-V-E um, and it was quite a fast pace sort of dance um just very basic you know the one two one two step um sort of back and forth um and we did a bit of 
movement sort of up and down, I guess, the dance floor, just in terms of a couple of twirls here and there. Um, it, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And do you, do you still dance? Uh, not so much, um, but I, I I did really enjoy it. I felt like it was just so lovely to feel the music and feel the movement. And um, where I think with how busy our lives can get with work and rushing from one thing to another, what was nice for me about learning to dance was just being able to let loose and relax and feel whatever your body kind of wanted to do and nothing ever felt wrong I guess even though it might have looked a bit wrong um it just was a really lovely freeing experience yeah I love the joy and movement I dance in very inclusive communities experienced dancers are expected to dance with beginning dancers and when I when I dance I I'm just following I'm connecting and that means meeting each person where they are, where they are in their dance journey. They could be a beginner, an advanced dancer. It's really about the connection, not about impressing the audience or even about staying on beat. It's about the connection. Mm. And look, dancing is just one thing in my life where I've had people assume that I couldn't or wouldn't do that. And it's, all based on people's assumptions and attitudes of what people living with a disability can and can't do or what they should and shouldn't do. How do we change those attitudes, Harbin? You change them by keep dancing, Naz. Every time you and your husband dance, you're changing the world. Every time you go off to a dance party or an event and you dance, you're changing the world. When we put positive disabled stories out there, even if they are our own stories, we're asking people to change their negative assumptions and adopt a new disability worldview. And this story, this interview you're producing is also gonna be one of those changes. Harbin, you have a guide dog called Milo. Can you tell us about him? Milo is amazing. Wonderful seeing eye dog. We trained maybe just less than two years ago, the summer of 2018. And he was trained at the seeing eye in Morristown, New Jersey. It's quite a process to train with a dog. He was trained to guide, but with his instructor. When I came into the guide dog school, I was just some random person to him and he felt no responsibility toward me. So it took time to build up a relationship, to build up trust. Just like it takes time with humans, when you're building a relationship with a human, you have to establish boundaries, learn to communicate with each other. He's my second guide dog. I had to get rid of all my expectations from my first guide dog and stop comparing him to precious Maxine and see him for who he was, for the Milo. A lot of guide dogs here in Australia are either Labradors, uh, Golden Retrievers, or I, th I think Labradoodles as well. Milo is a German Shepherd. That's right. And it's very intentional. Labs and Goldens are also really common in the United States. 
The guide dog school near me in California mostly does labs and goldens and I think mixes of the two. I wanted a German Shepherd. German Shepherds have amazing pointy ears. Very expressive, very adorable. They're also extremely intelligent and loyal. So I researched all the different guide dog schools. What are the hours of training the dogs go through? How, how well is the training process? And I found the seeing eye. It's the oldest guide dog school in the world. And I applied to go there, trained there with my first dog, Maxine, who was also a German Shepherd. Then in 2018, she passed away due to cancer. And I went to the seeing eye again and trained with Milo. Harbin, you have used a cane, or I assume you still do sometimes. I use a cane and I am thinking about getting a guide dog. Sell it to me. Why, why, would I, why would it be beneficial to get a guide dog? It's a personal choice. The cane is fantastic. With the cane, you don't have to feed it. It doesn't need to pee. When you're done traveling, you could put it under your chair or along a wall or even fold it up and put it in your purse. But the guide dog is always there. And the guide dog has so many needs. It's a huge responsibility. So it's very much a lifestyle choice. You have to be ready to have all the responsibilities. I love the lifestyle. Traveling is so much easier with a guide dog. With a cane, you have to bump into every single obstacle in your path. Not you specifically, but the cane. The cane taps an obstacle, then you know it's there and you move past it. Whereas with the dog, it'll zip right by the obstacle. So it's more efficient, faster, and it just feels more fun to me to travel with a guide dog. My friend Rachel follows you on Instagram and she would be very upset if I didn't ask, how does Milo rest? What, what does he like to do to rest? Milo has lots of toys at home. So he will play with his various toys. He has a stuffed toy whale that he likes to hold in his mouth and snuggle and then every day we take him to a park where he runs and chases a ball we play fetch with a chucket so i throw the ball with a chucket he runs after it catches the ball and brings it back so he gets lots of opportunities to run and now during the pandemic, I'm walking every day about three miles. So he's going on walks all over. Hubbin, what does success look like to you? How would you describe success? Success is finding your purpose and developing the skills to fulfill your purpose. All of us need to find a way to give back to our communities. We all have unique skills and talents that'll benefit our communities. It takes time to figure out what that is. It took me a while to figure out mine. After experiencing lots of barriers growing up and in college, I realized the power of using the Americans with Disabilities Act and advocacy to remove barriers. 
and I wanted to turn that into a career and advocate for people with disabilities. So success is finding your strengths and tapping into those strengths to give back to your community. Harbin, looking into the future, technology is, uh, I guess, in the same way it is for me, for you, a, a very big part of your life. And we have such a long way to go, even though we've got amazing bits of technology that have been developed to allow us to, to do what we do. What's one sort of piece of technology that you would like to see in the future? I would love to see accurate and dynamic speech-to-text technology. There's already some tech out there that'll do that, but it's not accurate or reliable in dynamic settings. So I'm excited for that to improve over the years. I, I think something that I have found quite frustrating as technology has advanced, it's also gotten, um, in, in some circumstances, less accessible. So, for example, uh, our coffee machine has broken down um, and we were looking for a new one and they are all touch screen. I need tactile buttons. Are you experiencing similar things? Oh, yes, absolutely. Fight back on those coffee machines. Coffee is important. You need coffee to do your job. Tell them to get an accessible version of those coffee machines. Harbin, do you ever get advocacy fatigue and how do you deal with it when you do? Because it can be incredibly exhausting to continuously fight for equity. Oh no, is that part of their strategy? They think by taking away your coffee, you'll stop advocating? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> fatigue sets in a lot faster. We do need to have our basics met before we have the energy to advocate. And that's why it helps to have a community. If you can't advocate for yourself, your community can step in and help advocate for you. Hubbin, what do you want to be your legacy? <laughs> well, my book for one, I wrote the book to help teach people to advocate. It helps people recognize what is ableism, how does it intersect with sexism or racism or all the different struggles in the world. So by making people aware, it'll help move people to start addressing it and removing it from our communities. So I hope my book will help teach people to be advocates for inclusion. Harbin, this conversation has been so fascinating and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, to learn from you. And I thank you for everything you do for our community and for everything you are teaching the non-disabled community as well. Thank you so much. You're so welcome, Naz. And if you want ideas for how to fight for your coffee, let me know. I, I will keep that in mind. As you say, coffee is way too important. Exactly. I'm from, my family is from Ethiopia where coffee started. Ah, exactly. So that's, yeah, you, you have first-hand experience of how important that is. Harbin, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome and thanks for your time, Nas. <laughs>